its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. The final discussion of our Great Plains themed program will dive into rural flight and explore different approaches to addressing the challenges it presents. As evidenced by our prior conversations, the agricultural sector has provided economic opportunity and stability for Great Plains residents for many years. Supplemented by the energy, manufacturing, tourism, and service industries, among others, the region has boasted largely impressive rates of employment. Even so, the Great Plains has not been immune to the phenomenon that is rural flight, or the exodus of people, often young people, out of rural areas and into urban spaces to live and work. The origins of rural flight trace back to when the agricultural sector first became industrialized, and the phenomenon is exacerbated when population decreases lead to a lack of public services. In fact, the Dust Bowl of the 1930s directly connects rural flight to the Great Plains, a region that has experienced population decline since 1920. As climate change alters the way agriculture and other sectors are practiced in this region, one can envision this trend continuing. Or, innovative strategies could be implemented to reverse the trend in the Great Plains and similarly affected locations, such as Kentucky and Texas, the Balkans or Tanzania. This session will consider two approaches to battling the rural flight challenge, increasing rural community prosperity and training youth in green careers. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Debbie Phillips, CEO of Rural Action and Jessica Kaknavicious, Vice President of Education at the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. So Debbie, we're gonna start with you for this final panel today. Can you get us started with a brief introduction to Rural Action? So thank you so much for hosting this and including us, Aubrey. It's been a great discussion so far. I'm really excited to be part of this. Rural Action is an NGO in rural southeastern Ohio. We're in the Appalachian region of the country. And we in Appalachia, our history is one that's been rooted in extractive industries that have really built wealth in other parts of the country, um, but not necessarily here. And we've seen a lot of out-migration of young people looking for opportunity elsewhere. So Rural Action's approach is to do, um, do asset-based community development in like a sector-based approach to try to really look around and see what we have in our community that we can develop, help develop infrastructure, help connect to markets, and find ways for people to create opportunity here that's rooted in our area and going to help create wealth that sticks and stays in the local community. Thanks, Debbie. Now, Jess, last but not least, of course, could you tell us a bit about the Sustainable Forestry Initiative and its career pathways work through Project Learning Tree Canada? Sure, would love to. Before I do that, I just want to let you know that I'm calling in from um, the ancestral territories of many Indigenous nations, including from our offices on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin people in what is now Ottawa, Ontario, and the 
Natchitoches, sorry, and Piscataway peoples in present-day Washington, D.C. So I just want to make sure I'm recognizing the, the Indigenous territories. And so Sustainable Forestry Initiative is a non-profit organization focused on advancing sustainability through forest-focused collaborations. Um, as I mentioned, we operate out of Washington, D.C., as well as Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Um, and although we have staff across North America, we also have some in rural areas that are working for our organization. We accomplish our, mis our mission in several different ways through our standards, conservation, community and education work. And we're really all about building the understanding of the values and benefits of sustainably managed forests. Um, in particular, I work on our education work, which is focused on green career path pathways for young people. Um, we believe that it's important for young people from young to young adult to get exposed to opportunities in the forest and conservation sector and provide them with the knowledge and skills that they need to enter into this potential career pathway. We do this in several ways. It's all the way from building up forest literacy in early education so that they're exposed to green careers, all the way to job placements, mentorship programs, skills development and career resources. We really see it as a building block approach, approach in order to engage young people and in order to really keep them in the career pipeline. Um, because of this work that we've done, we've been able to place around 5,000 youth in green jobs over the past four years through Project Learning Tree Canada. And we're looking at exploring and um, expanding our programming into the U.S. and looking at ways to place more youth and connect more youth to green jobs on the U.S. side of things. Thanks, Jess. Well, let's just dive right into the questions. I'm going to start with Debbie. So, Debbie, Rural Action seeks to create opportunities rooted in and controlled by local communities. How does this strategy improve environmental, social, and economic sustainability for those communities? Um, a lot of the work that we do, we work in a sector-based approach and we seek to develop like shorter value chains that are gonna drive more of the, um, the economic benefit into local communities. And we really work in the triple bottom line approach. You mentioned the social, environmental, and economic benefits. So um, this really helps to counter some of those trends from our history of extractive industry, really trying to develop multiple um, areas of capital that stay in our um, communities. And an example I can give is looking at shorter value chains in the food and ag sector. Um, one of the speakers on an earlier panel talked about the importance of CSAs and some of those short value chain approaches that connect consumers directly to healthy food, make sure farmers get increased value. Um, a way that we have worked um, in this is to try to help increase farm to institution sales. So think of like farm to school or farm to university or farm to our local hospital system. A lot of the, um, the produce that is grown here locally, the peak seasons happen in the middle of the summer when schools are not in session. So we have worked to help develop infrastructure where we can help with processing and storage of food so that it can be used in the schools, in the cafeteria during the school year. So um, we are able to purchase produce directly from farmers um, when they have peak production underway and then process food. So we have little corn cutouts that are frozen that can be served in the school lunch and kids are getting healthier local produce. Farmers are getting paid a lot more directly instead of being part of these like longer value chain systems that end up with the farmer getting such a small portion of that dollar. So it's really, it helps to build community, it builds connections, people know where their food is coming from, 
farmers can do better planning for how much and what to plant when they know what those demand channels are gonna be. So it really is that space of trying to connect these local systems and develop them at a more local and rooted level. Thanks, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I love how it's related to one of our conversations before. Everyone loves a good full circle moment. Um, Jess, I'm gonna turn to you now. So my understanding is, you know, just because a young person decides to take on a forest or conservation job doesn't mean they'll necessarily stay in that sector, in that job, in that location. So how does Project Learning Tree Canada support youth throughout their careers to actually boost retention? I think the, the biggest challenge we see with this generation is that there's a lack of understanding of the job experiences that are available. And I think that can be said across many of the natural resources sector and probably even agriculture from what I heard of earlier. And so th this lack of knowledge really, really prevents people from considering a career and then has led to this labor shortage problem in our supply chain. And so um, one of the th biggest things we know we can do is increase awareness. And as I mentioned before, that's through that in-class programming curriculum throughout, um, you know, early childhood and just getting them aware of those career opportunities. But one of the things we have found to be the most effective is that first time work experience. So we know getting them connected, getting them to experience the job outdoors. I know for myself, my first job was tree planting. Tree planting exposed me to the forest sector and got me into that field. And that that first time experience really creates that passion and that connection. Um, but we know that's not necessarily the only thing that it requires or that it takes for to keep someone within the sector. And so through that, we see through the multiple programs and resources we offer is that building block approach. And so um, we've been offering a mentorship program over the past two years and have supported over 250 mentorship pairs across Canada, making that connection. And for, for me, it's that connection of understanding how do people get into their career pathways, um, making that networking connection. Um, the one thing I've noticed the most in COVID is I think we've all benefited from our careers in those in-person events and developing our network. COVID has kind of taken away from that for young people. And so mentorship helps to provide that connection and helps them to build that network even in virtual times. And so hopefully that transitions to that in-person connection. Um, so yeah, so for us, it's really making that early connection and providing those building blocks and those growing opportunities. Um, and that's including online development, online courses. Um, and then for us, one of the most important things for engaging someone and keeping them within the sector is working with our employers. And so we've been developing and delivering um, diversity and inclusion training for our employers and creating um, understanding of what do young people want today? How do you create that inclusive hiring practice? And how do you create that inclusive workplace so that you keep them in that sector and keep them wanting to grow within that sector? And so again, those multiple pieces hopefully um, keeps young people within the sector, uh, whether it be in rural and urban, but definitely there's more rural opportunities than there are in urban. Well, that actually segues, I think, really nicely into my next and related question. You know, when you and I chatted before, you noted that youth graduating from natural resource programs often want to stay in the urban area where they were educated, as opposed to moving out to rural areas where the natural resource jobs are actually located. So are there particular strategies that you've learned, you know, that are effective for encouraging youth to make the move from urban to rural? Like what incentivizes them to do so? Yeah, so it's ironic because I'm talking about this when I live in a big city in Toronto and I grew up in Toronto and I always thought I would end up in a rural area. But knowing I'm in the city now, I do see that there's greater opportunities in the rural areas. 
Um, but for me, one of the biggest things is talking about that quality of life. And I think, again, quality of life, affordable living is something that connects with this current generation. Um, I'm sure in the States, much like in Canada, when COVID hit, a lot of people said, this is my chance to go and live in a different area, in a rural area, and find that quality of life I want. And that's the opportunity that exists within the forest sector, is that connection to that community, um, that that more slower pace of life, potentially, and that, that lower cost of living is a big part of that. Um, the other thing we talk a lot about is that values piece. Um, this next generation is really focused on finding a career that aligns with their values. So their values may be what I just mentioned, which is that that slower pace, that quality of life, that being able to own a home. Some of these things are values based and aligning yourself with that is really important in order for, for you to basically convince a young person to stay in a rural area or, or showing them the, the importance of making that connection. Um, and so for us, we know that there's huge opportunities available in in rural areas, and it's it's really about engaging them and making that connection. And if I go back to that mentorship piece, the biggest advantage we've had with that is a lot of the people that we match with in terms of the mentors to the mentees may be living in rural areas. And that personal connection, that personal story about why it's so valuable for them to live in those places probably um, pr probably exceeds what you would do in marketing and, and communications at a larger level. And that one-on-one -on -one is what gets people to consider that career um, in a rural area. Thanks, Jess. Debbie, I'm going to turn back to you now and consider, you know, the the fundamental job that people think of when they think of rural areas is related to farming and agriculture, right? And so something that you and I spoke a little bit about in our previous conversation was an interesting strategy uh, that you were theorizing to facilitate farm transitions. To, to summarize, really, you suggested the possibility of reconciling the migration of people out of rural areas, so the rural flight challenge we're talking about, with the climate-induced migration of people into rural areas. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea and how it may be relevant to Appalachian, Ohio, for example. Sure. Again, as you said, this is something that we are just starting to think about and trying to figure out. Um, we know that we've got this long history of people leaving rural places for economic opportunity elsewhere. But due to COVID, due to some of the impacts of climate change, we're already seeing land prices increase in our region, in Appalachia and in the Midwest. And I think a lot of that is because if you look at the projections, we're in an area that it, it, it's gonna continue to be a place that people can live and grow food. We're going to have to manage those extreme storm events that the previous panelists talked about um, in thinking about managing water resources. Um, but people are moving here. And originally, what we've been thinking about is how do we reverse the loss of farmland that is in production that we've seen across the country since the days of, you know, farm aid, all of the, the family farms that are being lost as farms consolidate or somebody um, retires and their kids are not interested in living on the farm when we know there are people being displaced from rural places who end up being settled in urban places by refugee serving organizations. So um, in central Ohio, there's a large Somali population. There are about 45,000 Somali people living in central Ohio. Many of them are living in large apartment buildings, but many of them came from agrarian communities. So we're just starting to to have those conversations, 
some of those organizations to say, are some of the people you're serving interested in rural life? Is there a way we could try to help connect them with farmers who are retiring or uh, with vacant land that is just, you know, sitting there delinquent on taxes because nobody's really caring for it? So it's one of those things where we might be able to consolidate some things that are problematic on their own, but might bring some lovely solutions. There could be people moving here from places who know how to grow food in a wet season, dry season climate, which is more what seems to be developing in the weather patterns here. So it, it's something that we think is really important to figure out. It's also going to have to to um, take a lot of attention to equity uh, concerns with respect to land access, because the first people who are moving here from other places are wealthy people from the coast who are trying to get away from the fires or the big storms. And we need to make sure that we don't end up with um, even deeper divisions um, with the folks who live here currently. So it's a lot to think about and work on. It is, but I'm so glad to hear that your organization is thinking about it and thinking about it with that equity lens in mind, um, because as you mentioned, it's it's critically important. So, Jess, I'm going to turn back to you now. Um, speaking of working with and engaging marginalized populations, I know that your organization has developed customized programming for the placement of indigenous youth in green careers. Could you talk a little bit about that programming? Yeah, so one of the things we've learned um, early on in our career development programming is that there's a lack of diversity within the forest and conservation sector. And so a big part of that is creating opportunities for Indigenous youth, youth to see themselves in a potential green career. And so we've done that at a basic level. Um, we've launched last year, um, it's called the Voices of Indigenous professionals in green careers and it's a guide that features pathways of, of, of Indigenous leaders and how they got into the green job that they are. Um, we're actually are launching later this year a journey of black professionals in green careers and looking at um, ways of highlighting black Americans and how they've progressed through their career paths um, in the natural resources sector. And so even just identifying, um, you know, that that piece to say, hey, there's there are people like me in this career. And I would say for even myself, it, being a woman in the sector with only 17 percent women in the forest sector, um, seeing more women has definitely been inspirational and, and encouraged you to stay within the, the sector. And so um, at the basic level, something like that just engages more Indigenous youth to consider a green career. Um, but the one thing we've really learned in our programming and supporting Indigenous youth that it, it takes that community level approach, which is so critical, and that Indigenous youth today are looking for different things that other youth are looking for. And COVID is a really good example. Over the past two years, we've been running some programming and have learned, you know, virtual might not be the way to engage some youth, including Indigenous youth. They really value that in-person community connection and that virtual piece um, works for some people, but not for all. And so making sure that we're, we're able to adapt our programming, um, whether it's hosting local community events or creating that community connection with that mentorship piece is really critical because they value that in-person communication. Um, we also have learned to really be be patient in developing relationships and being looking at the long term projection of how we're developing relationships with indigenous communities as well as indigenous youth and providing them those different opportunities along the way. And I think that can be said for any youth is not just a, a one and done, but really connecting them with, okay, here's the next opportunity. Here's where you can continue to grow those those skills in that development. Um, and then last is really providing um, 
and working with the right partners. And so we've worked with some some great partners um, that are focused on reaching Indigenous youth. And so we know that um, meeting people who are already engaged in, with those audiences is of critical importance. And even when I talked earlier about our journeys of Black professionals and green careers, we partnered with uh, minorities in agriculture and natural resources and related sciences, so manners, to develop this guide because we know that they're already working with the youth that we want to reach. And so um, partnership and collaboration is critical to success in those places. Thanks so much. Yet another, you know, bit of advice that I think can be very relevant, whether folks are working on this particular issue or many others. So on Jess's side of the coin, we've obviously been talking a lot about natural resources, forestry, green careers. Debbie, it turns out that Rural Action has a, its own sustainable forestry program. And I was wondering if you could tell us about how Rural Action is working with landowners to help them identify income diversification opportunities that are also ecologically beneficial. Sure, happy to. Um, yeah, one of the sectors we have worked in for a long time is sustainable forestry, and our program really has developed deep expertise in non-timber forest products. So looking at forest farming, um, we tend to, a, a lot of the land in our area is owned in smaller parcels than in some rural areas, and so people may have um, a little area of woodland. Um, most of the farms are fewer than 30 acres in Ohio. So they're, they're small farms, specialty farms. There are some larger commodities, but they tend to have a little bit of everything. Um, and we've just really tried to work with them. If they have a forested section, the a lot of times it just sits there until a logger shows up and says, hey, you know, I will pay you if you let me, you know, do a selective cut, which means they would high grade and take the highest value timber. And for people who are otherwise really busy, that might sound like a great deal, help pay for their kids college or something like that. So we're really looking at getting people to think about what they can do that's gonna be good for the value of the, the land, but also provide some income to them. So looking at high value crops like ginseng and golden seal that grow in the understory and teaching people how to do that wild simulated cultivation because so many of those populations have been over harvested by people poaching um, the, the wild uh, ginseng and, and high value herbs that grow in the forests here in our region. Um, we've also recently purchased some equipment for um, timber stand improvement that we are gonna make available to landowners who want to do timber stand improvement practices on their land, but might not otherwise have access to equipment or for beginning foresters entering the space to have equipment that they can use without having to have really high capital costs as they're starting up their projects. So um, just again, trying to look at what kind of infrastructure and support is necessary to help people do things at a scale that makes sense in our communities. And I would echo what Jess said too about like pathways into these professions. We, our environmental education program, when they do field trips or classroom presentations, for some of these young people, it's like the first time they've considered that like science or ecological restoration or something like that is a job possibility. It's just not something that they see portrayed in popular media or necessarily as fields that like people in their family have entered. So it, it's really trying to help people visualize possibilities and how do we create a culture of entrepreneurship in rural areas to help people find a way to stay, it, you're not 
very likely in most rural areas to get some big plant, you know, coming in that's going to hire a bunch of people with jobs that people can just walk in and do. We have to create a lot of these opportunities ourselves and help our the people in our communities start to value what they're doing and viewing those as either a viable career pathway or some kind of income diversification strategy that will help them stay here in our communities. Speaking of opportunities, I wanted to ask you, Jess, you know, why at this moment in time, um, why do forest and conservation sectors present massive employment opportunities for youth? And are there particular opportunities for women and girls as well? Yeah, and just speaking off of Debbie's piece, like for me, it's also about um, showing diverse opportunities for young people. And so they might enter in one career path, but when they're exposed to different ones, I think anyone's career path isn't linear and there's branches and there's ways to expand. And when I think about opportunities in the forest sector, um, it's really about building skills and even entrepreneurship, like you mentioned, Debbie, for me, it's like mentorship can be such an important piece for building that skill set and thinking about things differently. And so, um, you know, bringing people into the sector is critical for us to be able to expand and diversify finds what I think about diverse perspectives too. Um, we know that, you know, businesses do better. We know that innovation is better when you have more diverse perspectives, including um, people of color, including indigenous people, and, and especially including women, um, you know, profits, profits increases as one of the, the measures of success. And so um, one of the reasons there's such opportunities in the, in the forest and conservation sector is that there's a lot of people that are retiring out of the field. And as Debbie just mentioned, like, there's not people necessarily entering in because there is this lack of awareness. And so there's this gap in, in when people are leaving and when people are entering and so being able to shorten that gap um, but also I've seen a lot of young people because of this gap and you know these people that are retiring that are early on in their careers that are able to really succeed and take on some really larger roles just because the opportunity is there and and a lot of that does happen in rural communities and a lot of the people that I that I interact with in my own professional network are successful because there was a unique opportunity within their community someone retired and they were kind of the next person in line and so um, because of that I think I'm going to see a lot of growth of diversity in leadership positions which is going to be really really cool to see over the next 10 years um, and so for me whenever I think about you know talking to young people for me it's you know consider a career look at the opportunities and also be flexible with what you're willing to do and so that might be moving to a new area that might be considering a job you never thought you were going to do just to explore it because the the opportunities open up when you when you open up your parameters a little bit and if you're if you're worried about where you're going to live, you, you might restrict where you could potentially grow. Thanks for that, Jess. That's actually really inspiring as well. <laughs> um, Debbie, I'm going to turn back to you now and uh, pivot just a little bit. You know, part of the community development and community prosperity aspect of your work has really manifested in, in a handful of social enterprises that Rural Action has um, developed. And so, one of those social enterprises is True Pigments LLC. And what to me, from an outsider's perspective, is so interesting about true, pigment, true pigments is that it seems like it's very much steeped in the history of your Appalachian community. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work of true pigments and its goals moving forward. I would be delighted to. And you're right, it does grow out of the history of this region. So there's been extensive coal mining in the Appalachian region. And one of the legacy impacts from the pre-regulatory mining has been um, acid mine drainage. So when water leaks out of mines, underground mines, 
it's highly acidic and carries with it a lot of dissolved um, materials because of that acidity and it just kills the streams. So we have a long running watershed program for about watershed restoration program. And for about 30 years, we've been working to clean up the impacts of acid mine drainage. Um, it makes the water really orange, almost red sometimes um, because of how much iron is dissolved in this acidic water. And over those years, we've restored like 74 stream miles to livable habitat in partnership with state and federal agencies and the local university. The worst seep in the state of Ohio, located on True Town Road, this is where the name True Pigments comes from, discharges almost a million gallons a day of highly acidic water. The volume's so big that it has not been possible to treat that water with conventional means. It would just be expensive and it would go on forever. So we've partnered with the state and with Ohio University and this project, the initial funding is actually coming from the Office of Surface Mining. Um, and it will create a treatment plant that will remove the iron oxide from the water. So we will be treating the water for acidity to restore seven miles of uh, Sunday Creek to livable habitat. Um, but we're gonna be harvesting iron oxide from the water and selling that as a marketable commodity that can be used in artist paint, industrial paint, in brick. Um, this will produce from this one location about a half of 1% of the US iron oxide market. Much of the iron oxide that's currently used in the US in industrial uses comes from China. So it's gonna reduce carbon impacts because it won't be transporting it. And it's gonna be cleaning up seven miles of a stream. And we have a partnership with Gamblin to do like a test run. So I brought uh, props to, this is, uh, my background isn't letting it show up very well, but True Pigments, um, the artist paint that they produce um, came from this acid mine drainage um, contaminated water that they were able to produce a yellow ochre, a nice earthy red and a deep earth violet um, as a high quality artist paint that basically came from cleaning up polluted streams. So. We are um, breaking ground for the full-scale plant this spring, and we're just really excited. It's really kind of flipping that narrative, right? Here is this horribly polluted water. Nothing can live in the stream. The um, public water treatment system spends a lot of money cleaning the water before people can drink it. So we're gonna be treating the water, but it's gonna be employing people. It's gonna basically double the uh, payroll in the zip code in which the plant is located because there's so few jobs in this area um, and create awesome paints for artists to use. So we're pretty excited about it. Sounds like a very complete project, a very complete idea, which is very interesting. And congratulations on breaking that ground um, in the near near future. So it's time suddenly for us to wrap up this conversation. Time flies when you're having fun, they say. So I'm hoping we can conclude by having you each provide some closing thoughts related to one question. And that question is, how could your strategies be used as a model for addressing rural flight challenges faced by other domestic or international communities? And so Jess, I'll, uh, I'll ask you to respond first. Sure, and maybe I'll go off of Debbie's um, kind of innovative approach and say, um, you know, moving to rural communities has the opportunity for innovation as well as climate change solutions. And for us, I think reframing that a bit to to 
link in with that values piece that I mentioned earlier with what are what is this next generation looking for? They're looking for careers that align with their values. And so offering programs like work experiences, but really looking at ways to connect them to keep someone along in their in their career pathway is critical for success. And so for us, the most the most connecting impactful program has been our mentorship program, and that will connect more people into considering and experiencing careers in the rural community in the forest and conservation sector. Thanks, Jess. And Debbie, the last words go to you. I agree with everything that Jess said, and I would add, like, if you're looking at asset-based community development, if you're looking at social enterprises that take more than just a single bottom line approach, those principles apply anywhere. It's about looking at where you are and what assets are around you that you where you can add value, where you can work together as a community to figure out how to drive that value deeper in the community. That's it's a strategy that works around the world. And we've had exchanges with other NGOs from other countries through a different State Department program. We've had community solutions fellows who have visited with us here. And then we've been able to send some of our staff to visit the NGOs they're working with in their home country. And it's really exciting to be able to compare notes and see how much these theories really do play out in different places because it's about listening to people, looking at what we have and figuring out where we can build from that. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.